I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Scheinwald. Today, we have Christine Hunsaker on the podcast. Christine was an English and medieval studies major at Princeton. A few years later, she was running Right Media, an online advertising exchange, which was sold to Yahoo for reported $850 million. After taking some time off, and pay attention to that part where she talks about her time off, I found it to be absolutely fascinating, Christine joined Drop.io, helping to lead its sale to Facebook. Then she went sniffing around for her next big idea and arrived at Gwinny B, a clothing subscription box for women sizes 10 to 32. Christine has attacked this ignored segment of the market, which some estimate is now worth $19 billion, and in a few short years has a whopping 150,000 subscribers. Her team of 350 across the country, including a massive warehouse facility in Ohio, are certainly not looking back. With the reported $100 million in venture capital raised, we imagine that the Gwinnie B team and Christine want a, an even bigger part of that $19 billion pie and are going after it each day. Before we launch into our interview, I should give you an indication of what this podcast is actually about. VFA. VFA, Venture for America, is a program that I really believe in. It's a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. And maybe I should say a quick word about myself. I'm Jeremy Scheinwald. As I noted, I started the Mission Driven Group kind of 13 years ago, kind of a little before that. Um, Maybe uh, institutionalized it about 13 years ago. And... um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. And um, people actually do reach out to me, and I'm always eager to help. So um, if you have some, some use for me, then I'm there for you. Uh, I think I'll do enough of this banter here and just say um, enjoy the show with Christine. It truly was uh, one of my favorites. I found her to be a very fascinating guest. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy, or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Christine, thanks so much for uh, for being here. Thanks for having me. And for fitting us into your busy schedule, because last time we had to cancel because you had to jet off to India quickly. I live a very exciting life. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start uh, with you um, at Princeton as an English and medieval studies major. Um, when you were taking English and medieval studies, were you... 
imagining that you would one day be a tech entrepreneur? Absolutely. It was all part of a master plan. <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, I started off my um, tenure at Princeton as a molecular biology major. Oh, wow and spent two years in math and sciences. And after my sophomore year, just decided that, you know what, I'm not, I know I'm not gonna be a scientist. I know I don't love labs. Um, and so I'm gonna go do something I love for two years and switched over to be an English major. Um, the medieval studies part, which I'll admit is random, was because I wanted a very particular professor to be my thesis advisor. And the only way to get him to be my thesis advisor was to be one of the four people in my class to minor in medieval studies. <laughs> Simple as that, okay. So for those of you who are listening, you're getting, you're getting academic tips as well today. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, how did you, so how did you move from this English and medieval studies background into the tech world? What was the transition? So it was by way of strategic finance. I took a, so right after college, I moved to Germany for a year um, to teach at a boarding school um, and earn no money, but to live outside the US. For, I'd never been out of the country. And when I came back, or when I was coming back, I needed a job. Um, I needed to be able to pay bills. So I took a very um, kind of quick decision reporting job in uh, uh, financial reporting in 2000 at a technology consulting company. And within three weeks realized this wasn't really the job for me. Mm. Um, but we had just brought in, the company had just brought in a new CFO, it was during the boom, we were gonna go public. And so with a lot of naivety, I walked into his office on his second day and said, I noticed you didn't bring a team. I don't know anything about finance, um, but I learn really, really fast. I will work like a dog and I'm super cheap. And um, he took a big risk on me. And um, and then for the first six months of that job, I was completely drowning, taking every you know side corporate finance book course I could possibly take to learn what the hell a balance sheet was and how to use Excel and you know all of those things. And uh, actually ended up through that experience running a big portion of budgeting and planning, and then the subsequent seven restructurings the company went through. Um, after yeah, I mean it was two thousand two thousand one. Right. Nobody cut deep enough, <laughs> um, and that was in a technology company. And so, but I was back office. The next move I made was to a three person startup that made a product that was trying to design a product to solve the problems I had in my previous job. So I felt like I okay. knew this space, I knew you know all the challenges I had getting information and, and numbers in the way I wanted them. So I went in as a product person um, and then ended up running you know sales and marketing, um, technical sales, marketing, and working very closely with the engineers. And so I think that's where I really got my uh, deep education and kind of immersion into the space. So is that is that right media? Is that no? Is that, that was so, a company a long time ago uh, in maybe two thousand and one. I joined called Satova. Um, okay. It does financial reporting on top of ERP systems and cube maintenance. Like not exactly the most exciting thing. Okay, but a very good transition step for me. Okay, and after that you. After that, I. Um, before you let me make the mistake. After that, you. <laughs> yeah, I went to industrial design school for a master's oh, wow. degree. Um, so cool. I uh, I really enjoyed the act of building, but felt like I, um, I guess at that time I felt like I didn't have enough control. So I wanted to go build stuff, and I thought the thing that I could actually build, given I didn't have a straight technical background, um, was physical product. So I went to Pratt, which at the time was the second or third best program in the country in Brooklyn, um, and got into their industrial design master's program with largely no 
um, experience whatsoever. And I wanted to design toys, educational toys. Mm. And I did it for about uh, six months full time and um, was actually mentally not stimulated enough. So I took a part-time job, because most of the classes were you know, in the evening. So I took a part-time job at a little company called Right Media. Okay. And to clean up their back office. So kind of again, going back to my you know, finance, um, budgeting and accounting roots. And, um, and then I fell in love with the people and, um, and the idea of creating something. And so technically I'm still on hiatus from completing my master's <laughs> degree. Um, it's just been you know, 12 years. Is it something? Is is it a goal of yours to go back no, and finish it? Absolutely no, it's not. Done. Yeah. I'm a, the people from Pratt are listening right now, and they're like, "Okay, we'll just unenroll." F- yeah, right people now. from Pratt. It was a fantastic yeah. program, but I um, it really gears you towards like master's programs, right? They gear you towards getting a job. Mm-hmm. I was not interested. I've never really been interested in getting a job. Um, I've been interested in um, learning and doing interesting things, and I think a master's program is just not the right mental construct for me. And you have a job and you are building things. Yes, so, exactly. Mission accomplished. So Right Media is this is this like rocket ship and and your um, trajectory there probably echoes the company. You, know, you start as this project manager, become COO and then president and you're in your what, like mid 20s at that point? Yeah, um, yes. I feel like as Right Media grew up, I was also growing up. Um, the nice thing was the executive team for the first couple of years, we were all the same age. We all had kind of no idea what we were doing, um, but we were doing it together. And I think that was a, a great experience. Um, I look back at lots of very positive things. I think that really kind of gave me a foundation in many ways and lots of very important lessons uh, lessons learned. So uh, Yeah, so let's talk about those lessons learned. Like, was this... Exciting, terrifying, both. Both. I, I mean, there were days because just so to give everyone context, like this company grew, I, I jotted down it grew tenfold in a period of a couple of months at one point. It did it twice. twice. It went from three billion to like three hundred billion transactions a month in um, in six months, and then six months. I mean, it was just incredible, incredible growth. I mean, it pioneered the um, online ad exchange model, which is now how a lot of remnant inventory is, um, is bought and sold. But at the time, it was a very pioneering concept. Um, and, uh, and it just took off a lot faster than we thought or were prepared for. And so we were kind of constantly always playing catch up. Um, it was both terrifying and exciting. Uh, there were many Fridays, like you power through the week and then you hit Friday and you have a little bit of a breakdown. Thinking about, I'm in way over my head. Um, this was, you know, so stressful. Um, I think I made like 80 mistakes this week, and I'm so tired. And kind of have that breakdown, and then get up on Saturday morning and say, "All right, let's, you know, let's get back at it." It's just like an interesting perspective. Like I'm in over my head, but this thing, no matter, uh, like I, maybe I'm, you know not nearly as exactly, but like, sort of like no matter how many mistakes you make, this beast is still growing, right? Like, yes. like, like and that's sort of a weird, it's gotta be a weird place to be. Yes, and there were a couple of very terrifying moments. Um, I would say one of the biggest ones was um, we were going through our first round of um, real venture funding and the deal fell apart. And the deal fell apart very late, like while we were still in the lockup period of the term sheet, um, the no shop zone. And we were out of cash. We had a lot of people working for us and no cash. And so the CTO and I just put an order. It was the question of, 
are we going to order servers so we can continue growing? And at that time, everybody there was no Amazon Cloud, um, or do we pay? Do we make payroll? And so we put like a hundred thousand dollar order of servers on our personal credit cards. And this was before the credit crisis, right? So American Express charge card just kind of let you do whatever. I mean, we didn't have the cash to cover this, Um, and we were taking this massive bet that we would very quickly be able to find. Uh, venture capital. We had faith in the CEO, uh, who was just an amazing um, uh, kind of visionary and storyteller. That he would be able to close a deal really quickly. That was a little um, uh, rip your lung out inducing. Right. <laughs> um, so that was one of the big ones. And then I would say the second biggest one was how quickly did you get your hundred thousand dollars back? I mean, uh, you, like three weeks. I mean, it was one of the most. Okay. It was one of the quickest funding processes ever. Um, I mean. It wasn't a very considered thought. It was simply a, well, this is what you do. Right. And, you know, worst case scenario is you go personally bankrupt. Um, Sounds like a pretty pretty terrible worst case scenario. Yeah, but, you know, people bounce back from that. <laughs> um, nobody died. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it was things like that that you, um, you go through. And I think times like that kind of show you whether or not um, you're comfortable taking risk or not. Well, apparently you are. Uh, so, Right Media was purchased by Yahoo. Um, reported eight hundred and fifty million dollar price tag. You know, it seems like the like the sale happened pretty quickly. Um, at a price tag like that, is it possible to have reservations in the lead up to selling? What kind of reservations? Um, you know, is this going to work out well for? You know, my team, is there a better offer out there? Is there, are we doing this too soon? Could we grow this bigger on our own? I I mean, I'm trying to think of reservations. I think it'd be pretty hard to have reservations, but. I think if we felt like. I'm sure it's different. Yeah, I think we felt like the company itself and the idea was, again, very pioneering. But at the end of the day, you needed to be, to own some content. Like, so we were in the middle between advertisers and publishers, and we were kind of taking fees out of both sides of the equation, uh, meaning we would charge advertisers to run and kind of do a rev share, you know, rev share on the publisher side. So if someone built the same model but owned the content, they were going to be more cost effective at doing it. So when the acquisition came through, the um, the price tag, you know, the price they paid was fantastic. Um, and I think that was a big piece of it. But the second one was, you know, do you think you can grow it better by yourself? And for us, because we weren't native owners of content, um, we felt like it was actually better positioned within one of the big publishers. So, you know, you you sell it to Yahoo, and 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 you know it it sort of from reading up on it, it seems like you know it gets enmeshed in Yahoo's own troubles and kind of Yahoo with time seemingly abandons it correct correct me if I'm wrong is that something like when you leave something that that you worked so hard at is it something that you follow you followed closely after you left did it did it sting at all to see Yahoo shut down right media or was you were you just already on to the the next thing and and that was Yahoo's thing I think at the point at which they officially shut it down it was it was well past the time that they should have probably pulled that trigger. The immediate the immediate acquisition time after that um, was very difficult for me personally, um, and part of it was, you know, 
you're in control in a startup, right? Like you're able to make decisions very, very quickly. And, and the way Yahoo was making such a bet on Right Media and their technology and their model was to immediately integrate it into all of the major groups. So our sales force went into sales, our product team went into product. So it didn't stay together as a unit. And that was my job. My job was running that unit. Right. Um, so in many ways I lost my job. Um, and so I went and ran, co-led a uh, research project within Yahoo that was supposed to be about the next generation marketplaces systems, and um, which was intellectually interesting, but I couldn't really get into it because I was watching this thing kind of get from my perspective um, taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that was that was very challenging. And then I you know I left and um, as honestly as soon as my vesting was done. Um, which I had about a year that I had to put in. Um, I left after that. It was a very interesting time for Yahoo. Terry Semmel made the acquisition. Jerry Yang was a CEO. Sue Decker was a CEO. And then Carol Bart stepped in as the CEO. Right. I went through four CEOs wow. of a major public company in a year. Um, so that was right. interesting. Right, a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you, I mean, you, you so you you vest, you leave, you take some time off, um, you traveled for I think more than a year. Where did you go, and and when did you know it was time to come back? So I didn't continuously go, and I think this was a mistake. I went on a trip, and I'd go on a trip for two weeks, and then I'd come back, and I'd go on a trip for two weeks, and so I kind of went a number of different places. I hit, you know, Africa safaris. I hit. I learned to scuba dive, so I hit a couple of different islands, spent a bunch of time in the Caribbean, spent a bunch of time in all different countries in Europe, but they were always these non-planned out kind of short trips. And I realized during that time, like I didn't have a plan. And I was feeling very unproductive and unfocused. And when I would come back to the States, I would sit in my apartment and watch 18 hours of Bravo TV. Because you have all the time in the world, so there's no reason to do something now. I'd be like, I have to go to the gym today. Well, at some point, I'll go. Law and Order reruns, not the Housewives, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think okay. I've seen every episode of SVU during that time, <laughs> three times over. Um, but uh, but it was actually, I would say, you know, looking back, I was depressed. Like, I just didn't have that reason for getting up in the morning. Um, and when I sort of, I forced myself to take a year of downtime. And you know, after that, um, I was okay. I'm I'm ready to get back into it. And then had all of those normal um, doubts of what if I'm not any good at this? Like, what if that was just a one hit wonder? Um, And I'm not like I'm not gonna be able to recreate it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was also kind of a very interesting time to go through. Mm -hmm. So how? So you know. That's interesting that you have that kind of doubt, and I think that that's I think you know we all think of like this glamorous sale, you know these these big numbers come out, um, and you know everyone assumes that it's just like you know every day is is another carnival or something like that. Um, so I think that's 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 a very interesting point. Um, but you could have, you know, you could have gone anywhere at that point, presumably. I mean, you know, it's this amazing pedigree, and you know, and 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 you end up joining Drop.io next, and 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 uh, which was uh, an uh, interesting move, right? So, how, why, why, why there as opposed to anywhere else? I suppose. I think because of a lot of the self doubt, I went, I ran to safety. Um, so I went and took a role that was a COO role. 
one that didn't ultimately, at the end of the day, have the responsibility for all the decisions. Um, I would be running the company internally. Um, the CEO was not a kind of a you know a manager and um, an operator, and it was a very comfortable place for me to go back into. It was a struggling technology company with some great fun people at it, um, and I it didn't come with pressure. Um, and I that's why I did it. And within a month of being there, I was like, okay, I got my mojo back. And uh, <laughs> I, I gotta like, I gotta move on, you know, relatively quickly here, um, because I knew that wasn't the place for me. Again, nothing against the people or anything else. It just wasn't an area I was passionate about. wasn't a product I was passionate about. Um, and then we had a sale to Facebook. Uh, I mean, I think within six months of of me being there, which was great. So the sale, the sale was very fortuitous for you personally, because you just didn't see yourself there for yeah. much longer. Yeah, but it it played a very important role of I think giving me that confidence back and that motivation back. Right. And so, again, you know, you kind of go in this process of discovery for about uh, about a year before you decided you join, you start uh, Gwynny B. Yeah. And what, what happens during that year? How do you come up with this, this idea and decide to run with it? So the idea came up very early. Um, and uh, But I spent that year actually doing a ton of market research and really battle testing the idea and the unit economics. Um, but I was very focused on, I mean, I looked at a bunch of different industries, you know, healthcare, energy, I'm kind of industry agnostic, um, but was looking for something that was a large industry, hadn't been disrupted really by data and technology, and a place where we could build a long-lasting institution. You know, Right Media was fantastic, but it was hard to argue it was gonna be a long-lasting institution, like it was better off inside a publisher. Um, and uh, and so I looked at a bunch of different things and got really into the um, the apparel space because it's a basic need. It's you know almost a two trillion dollar market globally, and frankly has not been disrupted by technology and data. Uh, so I spent that year um, interviewing women and coming up with different models and finding out where the um, kind of where the the bend and break points were on what people could and could not uh, tolerate. What I found interesting about um, you starting Gwynny B is that Right Media and you know Drop uh, are both kind of like pure tech companies. They have like no inventory, office space rather than warehouse space. Um, did this feel like a big departure for you? Yeah. Were you, yeah? <laughs> I mean, I think um, one could argue that going from online advertising in a B2B role, um, in a B2B <coughs> space, and going into women's apparel where we were going to take a bunch of inventory risk and physically ship boxes was a bit of a departure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're mocking my question. A little uh, bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's still like in the, it's still in the tech world and you're still a COO. I mean, you're still a CEO, but a COO at heart and, and there's a lot of operations here. I'm defending my question. I'm going to move on. <laughs> so, so. No, actually, I will say that I spent, during that time, I spent about nine months recruiting our head of engineering. From, we pulled him from Yahoo, um, and it was a guy that I worked with on that Next Generation Marketplaces project, and by far the best executor I have ever met in my life. Um, and the way to get him to leave was to explain it in online advertising terms. And so while there are not, um, seemingly from the outside, I mean, I mock your question a little bit, but there actually are a number of parallels. Um, while there are, are, you know, from the outside, it's clothing, women's clothing versus um, versus this ad exchange, there are actually a lot of similarities and parallels in trying to bring value to the demand side and the supply side 
of the industry. And you know, one could argue that big box retailers are very similar to ad networks. So I actually wrote them a paper on how the um, apparel industry uh, was similar to online advertising and where the opportunities were. And um, that kind of got them there. I found that response to be very validating. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm going to jump ahead because you just talked about how you worked really hard to um, to, to lure this engineer. And um, you told Forbes, the first people you bring in matter. They establish culture, work ethic, and fundamental values. You know, who who were these uh, these key first people on your team? And, and how did you really determine they were the right people to build the culture around? Uh, so I had worked with all of them in the past. Um, in various parts of uh, in my, my life. Um, and I think that was a key. The founding team, there's no one new. Everyone is, is you, you, they're a known entity to you, and so it's a very stable yep, Or team. known entity to one of, one of us. I, we got to 60 people with that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, we just kept pulling from the, from the network. But those people, you know, you'd been in work situations with them before. They're all very data-driven, very direct. Um, very collaborative and very tenacious. And those are the four pillars of the culture. Hmm. So uh, going back to the, uh, the idea itself, I mean, you know, when you, when you decide to really go after it, you're talking to these women and they're telling you um, about this hole in the market and, and, you know, it's a $19 billion market, or at least that was the last time I, I, I checked. Um, and I mean, was it enough to just hear from them or was there still like, a ton of analysis to make, like, I feel like something that big that's underserved, you gotta be like, how is this possible? Like, do I have to, do I have to prove this out? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one of the, the interesting, um, the interesting things was you gotta convince yourself, right? So you can build unit economic models all day long, but at the end of the day, you've gotta really convince yourself that this is something that customers, there actually is a gap here, even if, if they're not saying it directly. Um, and you have to start questioning, like, you're not the only one who has good ideas. So A, why hasn't someone else mm -hmm. done this? And what are the, you know, what are the fundamental, uh, you know, uh, properties of the current industry that have prevented this from coming up? Because, you know, no matter what, you're not a genius. So. And I think looking at that and thinking about, you know, systemically, what are the problems in apparel overall? And why is it that this, that this particular size demographic has not been well served? Um, you know, I did actually quite a bit of research to convince myself. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, I mean, but you got to be your own harshest critic. So why wasn't being served? Okay, so I'm going to try and not make this a super long-winded answer. So if you think about when the... Um, uh, when the population started to get larger in size in a meaningful way. It was really in the 80s. And during the 80s and 90s, it was unfortunately completely acceptable to shame people into losing weight. Like mm. you get to wear a muumuu until you shed 50 pounds and then you can be worthy of putting on a dress. And so the options were very limited and retailers don't wanna serve a demographic that is not attractive to the entirety of their potential demo, right? So if you're if you're making only, I mean, it's completely idiotic, but if you're making only clothing for straight size people, you don't wanna make clothing for plus size people because it brings down the value of your brand. And the way society is dealing with issues of, of weight gain and size is in a very shaming way. Mm -hmm. um, I think finally in the early 2000s, people started to realize that shaming works for no one 
and in fact makes um, makes it worse. Um, and that there is absolutely no reason why, no matter where people are today, um, they shouldn't feel good about themselves. Like everyone has every right to feel as good about themselves as possible wherever they are in their journey. Um, and that there is no wait until tomorrow, right? There is no at some point you'll be you'll be worthy. And this movement mm-hmm. was really led by a number of size acceptance activists, which is largely rooted in the feminist uh, movement. And we are not at all, I am not at all in any way, shape or form pioneering anything there. I am riding on the shoulders of a lot of hard work they did through the 2000s. Um, but through that, women started to become more and more comfortable that they shouldn't feel ashamed. And think about it, the people in their 30s, they were born in the 80s. They were born when this is what America looks mm-hmm. like, right? They're not coming out of this idealized you know, 50s world. Um, and they're kind of standing up and saying, this is everyone around me. It's two thirds of the American population. Why should we, the majority, be told to hide ourselves or dress in certain ways? I think all of that kind of came came together, but it takes mm-hmm. retail a while to respond. Right. And so you started, I read that you started Gwynny B in your apartment. Yes. And. I imagine the scale, considering you just said you went from a couple to 60 people pretty quickly, and I imagine the inventory grew pretty, pretty quickly. How long could your apartment withstand um, you know, dress inventory, and, 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 what it, and what did it look like? About a year and a half. A year and a half. Um, we got up to about 20 people working in my apartment. How many, how many outfits? Like it was like a thousand outfits? Yeah, your, a little bit more. Outfits? Yeah, a couple thousand. Um, it's a New York apartment. Yeah. It is, yeah. but you know, Yahoo was a nice acquisition. Right. <laughs> um, so they basically cleared out all of my furniture. Um, I mean, I started off slowly. I love the right? visuals. No, it's this great. is like it's encroaching um, on. Uh, they cleared out all of my furniture room by room, um, and finally, at the end of it, I was left with a bed um, in half of my bedroom, and the other, even the other half of my bedroom, was being so used. Is your for team things. also working working out of your, your oh, apartment? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Team working out of your apartment. All the inventory. Yep. Laundry's being done out of there. People are coming at like eleven o'clock at night to do laundry overnight. So <laughs> did your building give you a hard time with this? Were they like, oh, just go do it? Ten unit building, no security. Um, I was on the top, uh, the the top of the building, so it um, it. It was not noticed. Okay. Um, and uh, but we got to. I mean, we got to a decent size before right. we uh, we ended up moving out. And I just hit a point in 2012, in the fall of 2012. I was like, get out. Like I'm done now. I hadn't realized how draining it had been to have people at my place from 6 a.m. till midnight every night, um, and almost seven days a week. And right. so. I needed, I needed space. Right. Moved into a warehouse in Long Island City for twelve dollars a square foot, uh, which was just amazing. <laughs> and a week later, Hurricane Sandy hit, and I'm oh, in the wow. flood zone. So my building elevator was down for nine months. Um, we oh got out. God. We luckily got out a week before Sandy hit. So that potentially could have killed the. It would have been business. bad. Yeah, yeah. it would have been bad. That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um, at the beginning, are you are you bootstrapping? You know, this is from the start. I mean, is, is all is, is all back on your credit card personally? Uh, all the all the outfits. Um, we started raising a convertible pretty early, um, but I would say one of the things about pulling in um, some more seasoned people, um, which is definitely one of those things like you're just fortunate, and I understand it's like a privileged place to come from, but people had enough money to not work for a num- to to work for a number of months without getting paid. 
um, and that makes a big difference in the beginning. There were a few people who abs- who needed cash to like you know pay bills for their family, um, and we figured out ways to do that to meet kind of basic needs. But we also were very fortunate that when you're bringing in people in their you know mid 30s, early 40s, um, they have a little bit saved up. Um, and that is a very, I mean, I recognize it's a very privileged position to be coming from. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. And, you know, this is this is kind of your third go round at this point. Um, um, you know, is there is when you when you're at your third go round, can you run before you can walk? Were there no. things that no, you can't. You, yeah. everything still has to be very step by step, systematic. You, you weren't like let's grow this thing big to start. You, you think this would have been the same thing you would have done otherwise? I think that what you bring with you are um, lessons of what not to do. Um, so you learn things like, you know, culture is a very important thing that can get out of control really quickly unless you stay on top of it from the beginning. You learn that if you've got a bad fit on a team member, just get them out early. Um, you learn that, um, you know, you really actually need to plan through things and prioritize things or else at some point you're going to end up running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Um, you learn that you know communication and keeping people informed on various things matter. Role definitions matter, um, or else at some point they cause a lot of problems. And so I think on those types of things, on kind of pure company building things, um, there were a lot of um, there's a lot of knowledge brought to bear on that, and a lot of mistakes avoided. I think when it comes to proving out concept and market acceptance and category creation. It's going to take what it's going to take. Right. But it sounds like what you're saying in, in some ways, if I'm reading from the lines, is um, confidence. You have, you have the confidence to, to go out there and like and hire the right people and know that the, the business would, to the extent that you can know this, that the, you know, the business could ultimately grow to, to support it. Um, I would say it was also um, very much a, you got to hire the right people because <clears> at the end of the day, if you want a big business, it can't all be on you. Right. Um, and so very early on, it was about shedding responsibility and pushing things on other people as much as as much as possible. Um, and that's uncomfortable. I mean, I like being in details, mm-hmm. um, and I still, you know, to this day, um, have to catch myself of what areas am I allowed to have fun in and go play with data, versus where do I need to be? Like, can someone else just pull that? Mm-hmm. For me, um, and uh, but but I think if you ultimately if you want to build something big, things you can't be the breakage point. You just said something a second ago that I wanted to follow up on. I wish I could quote you back, but I've already I don't, I don't think I can nail it right now. But you said you know kind of you gotta it's your responsibility to make sure that you're shaping the culture the way you want to early, and you're you know kind of like adjusting, iterating appropriately. I mean, tell us about that. I mean, what what was the culture early, and what did you have to? fix quickly just to, to get right? So because so many of us had familiarity, right? There comes with that an innate sense of trust and we knew each other's working styles. So certain things you don't codify, you don't write down um, because they just are. And then you start bringing in more and more people and you realize these things need to be in fact written down um, and explained and articulated because they're coming and bringing 
their own stuff with them. So um, one of the things very honest, we're very direct. Um, not mean, but you know, we have a big like, say what you mean, you know, no passive aggressive. You can be passive or aggressive, but you can't <laughs> be both. Um, and, uh, and, and we have kind of a disagreeing commit culture, like argue it out, but when you walk out of the meeting, everybody better be on the same page. And so for some new people coming in, when that wasn't codified, it was a, whoa, this is a harsh, right. harsh culture. Um, when you set their expectations that, look, people are pushing back on me left, right, and center. Um, it's not like I'm direct and no one else is. I mean, people throughout the whole chain are direct up, down, across, sideways. Um, and if you can set the expectation for that early, you can bring people and get them kind of indoctrinated into the way the company works much faster. And so we, um, I think we invested probably in HR about six to 12 months too late, later than we should have, not too late. I mean, we're in a good place, but we probably should have invested six to 12 months earlier. But those are the things that they slowly happen and you don't realize it. Um, and then you have to do, a, you're paying down a little bit of debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you also told Forbes, we've taken a disciplined approach to growth and that kind of made me laugh because I mean, I'm, I'm sure you did, but you know, just like the growth is so staggering. You have four years, you've, <clears throat> pardon me, ever reported 150,000 users. I'm sure maybe those those numbers are even out of date since I, since I read that. Um, 350 team members, teams in New York City, India, Ohio, Silicon Valley. I mean, how can you be disciplined when the market is just so demanding of your service? I think by disciplined, um, the better word potentially, or maybe an adjacent word, would be thoughtful. So we've made sure kind of on each stage we have, okay, what are we looking to do at this next milestone? What are the exit criteria for this milestone? What are the things that say success? What are the things that say failure? So um, a good example of that, uh, we just launched a DRTV commercial, which is a big leap, right? We put a 30-minute show out uh, on TV um, that talks about our service and has all these member testimonials um, as a way to raise awareness, you know, awareness and education around who the brand is and and what it is we do. Um, We have exit criteria for, uh, it launched on July 25th. On November 1, we have to see X, Y, and Z from a cost scale and uh, conversion retention metrics in order to say that was successful or not. And if it's not, and it's between band one, we're gonna do this. Mm-hmm. If it's between band two, we're gonna do this. And, and one of those ultimately is we're not gonna spend on it anymore. Um, but I think that to me is, is what I mean when I say disciplined, um, like know why you're doing it and what success and what failure look like. So you, you obviously got a ton right. Is there anything that you just flat out got wrong? Oh. Are you kidding me? So the the small <laughs> things that I've mentioned that have gone well, yeah. um, <laughs> there is. A, Let me rephrase. What did you get? What did <laughs> I get? Considering your contrition. Yeah. Well, I suppose this is this is uh, in line with your culture of being entirely honest and yeah. telling people how you feel. So, what did you get wrong? Um, I think a lot of things. We didn't invest in marketing early enough, um, and I think. You know, our first month, all we wanted was a goal of get 25 credit cards. We did all this market research, hundreds of women telling me this is the greatest concept ever. And then we put a website up and we asked for people's credit cards and it's like crickets chirping and we get to 19 and we can't get above 19. And I'm having this moment of panic. Oh my God, I got these people who I respect, some of the best people I've ever worked with to quit their jobs, very good jobs. 
and convince them that there's a market here and I cannot get a credit card. And so what is going on? And that's a moment of panic. And mm-hmm. um, uh, head of engineering, who has a very practical approach to things, was like, all right, well, let's go ask people why they're not doing it. So mm-hmm. let's get together some focus groups. So we went and set up like five or six focus groups across the East Coast um, with women who had never heard about the service, talked to them about the concept, loved the concept, showed them the site, hate the site. Hmm. And it was like, what do you mean you hate the site? Clothes are, you know, they're matronly, they're frumpy. I'm standing there being like, are you kidding me? These are some of the best pieces out there. We shot them with dark jeans and it was April. And it turns out the way you style an outfit and shoot it matters uh, to consumers, (laughs) shockingly (laughs) enough. Um, And so overnight we went and reshot and put everybody in white pants and some lighter spring accessories. Next focus group we came to, love the concept, love the clothes. And I think that was a, how can you not think that merchandising matters in a consumer business, right? That's like a little microcosm. Then, you know, fast forward two to three years and given background, I'm a big believer in direct response online advertising. Moving into this fuzzy world, squishy world of brand, um, took me a while to get around to the fact that it's an amplification technique. And probably took me about six to 12 months to be longer than it should have to convince me. Now I'm a huge proponent of it. Um, And looking back, I wish I had gotten there six to 12 months earlier. Hmm. So people shape companies, but companies also shape people. How how has Gwynny B changed you as a manager and a person? I think it's more, I'm a better manager, I have better techniques, that's all fine. Uh, I don't think that's interesting, Um, no offense. But um, (laughs) the, as a person, um, I look. I'm a. I'm a more confident, relaxed, happy, productive, better person because of it. And it comes down to um, the company is about promoting acceptance and celebration of all women. And we've created that environment and it carries through in every single person we hire. And when you're in an environment that people are just naturally looking for ways to build people up um, instead of take people down, um, it changes your outlook. So I think that's, that's one. It allows you to just be open to many things. And the second part is because naturally we're dealing with body issues. Um, and I, I don't have an eloquent way to say this, but there is a voice in your head um, as a woman that is constantly like, you don't look good enough, you're not enough, you're not enough, you're not smart enough, you're coming across this way, do you look, do you look good enough, are you too fat, are you, does that look weird on you? When that voice goes away, the amount of productivity and just kind of peace you gain um, and the things that you're able to do with that, without that constant stream of negativity, is tremendous. And I think focusing on this area and having so many open conversations in with our members and in the office has just fundamentally changed my perspective on how I fit in the world. So you're talking about how you fit in the world, and I'm curious. You know, you, you're talking a lot about like big macro trends in society and things changing. Um, you know, do you feel like Gwynnie B is, is is helping to change this reality? And do you feel like are are we at the earliest stages of a of a shift where I don't know, you know, where where you know sh- more of the shaming is on the way out, and and 
there's I, I'm trying to think of what a what a post shaming world looks like. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, one where people just don't judge each other based on size, right? right. One where you know uh, thin people don't earn more money than large yeah. people. One where tall people don't earn more money than short people, right? One that's right. like evaluated on actual skill and competency as opposed to superficiality. Um, I think we're a long way away from that, right? right? To whatever extent that we can help with that, that Gwynnie B can make an impact. Um, and I actually think we are, and obviously we have ambitions to make a huge impact. Um, that's a that's putting good kind of you know out there in the in the world. And I think for us, you know, our members when we film this infomercial, you know, they talk about feeling more confident and feeling better, and how they're able to get more done and rock a boardroom or you know feel like a boss going into meetings. That. That matters, right? Again, you take that weight off of that that voice saying you're not enough, um, and there's actually a lot that you can get done. And there's there's just a a glow that exudes. Um, maybe the one of the best visuals is you just stand a little taller, mm-hmm. and when you stand a little taller, like everything just becomes easier in life. One hundred and fifty thousand subscribers, customers, you know, <clears throat> reported. Um, you know, I, like I think we have this tendency to think about ventures. I, this is part of the reason why the, why we even started the show. I think people think about, you know, the, the the venture is like, oh, you know, me and a couple of buddies, we start this company and we quickly sell it, and you know, we we cash out. And but it sounds like this is like a a, a really personal mission for you. And and you know, is this is this the company that you're that you're at twenty years from now? Is this the the I one that so. you, the one that you stick with? There's no. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that was one of the goals, right? Build a long lasting institution. And um, uh, there, you know, I, I, so I hope it is that we are building this company to um, take public. We think, you know, not anytime soon, but we think it has the unit economics um, and the value and the longevity to uh, to do that. Um, and you know, this, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I can't imagine working with a different team. Um, I can't imagine waking up in the morning and being as excited about anything else. I mean, not any, you know, whatever things happen in life, but um, that is absolutely the way that this is is being built. It's not built to to flip. Um, I think you know there are companies that do that, and that's fine. Um, they just want a particular outcome. I you know I want a different kind of outcome. So, what's the outcome that you that you that you want? Um, I think ultimately there are, you know, we obviously want a great return for our investors, for us personally. Um, we, be, we believe we can do that through the public markets. Um, we, I want to build a place that people love to work, um, that people really achieve and develop um, and go on to do amazing things, whether within the company or outside of the company. Um, you know, I want to be, I want to be able to keep that culture. You know, we're 400 people now. I want to be able to keep that culture at 4,000 and 40,000. Um, and uh, you know, so I think employee um, employee development is a uh, is a big part of of what we do, um, and what we're starting to really focus on um, now. And uh, I want a lot of women to feel good about themselves. And maybe at some point, I want a lot of men to feel good about themselves too. But you know, right now, focused on um, really focused on this demo. And I think to me, that's a very yeah, I mean, it's financially and emotionally rewarding. Like you can't get. I mean, that's like the holy grail. Well, I want to I want to thank you so much for for sharing your story. I mean, obviously, it's a great. I was I was having trouble wrapping the show, and I think you've left us on this very uh, you know this this imaginative note. We're gonna you know all the think holy about grail. where yes. yes, exactly how to get there, um, and 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 watch you. I get I feel like there. this was like a, um, a verbal version of a yoga session. Oh, 
I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take that as a very flattering comment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, no, I've, I've certainly really enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed your candor. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the fact that you've you know, given me a little pushback on my questions. I'll, uh, I'll tighten up. Uh, <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us, and and uh, and it's great that you're there for the long haul because this means that you'll get an invitation back. We'll check in with you in, in the in the future. Yeah, I would love it. Thanks so much. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.